This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This week, the Clarets face a Wolves side who've taken our place in the Europa League. This is the Known and Never podcast. Hello everyone, George Poole here after the game at Wolves today. Feeling pretty depleted to be honest, I feel sick as a chip uh, with a one all. to be honest. <sighs> I just can't believe it, to be honest. Last minute like that. I thought we were pretty cruising through the game for most of the game until the last 20, when obviously they're going to come at you, being the home side, losing 1-0. I thought we were absolutely taking the mick, to be honest, during times in the game. We were passing it around so well and playing so well to go with it. I thought James James Tarkovsky, probably his best ever game for Burnley today. He was absolutely incredible. An absolute rock at the back. Nothing was getting past him. And it just summed it up in the second half when, I don't know who he took it off, but he took the ball off someone, dribbled past two of their attackers and then slid down an incredible through ball uh, down the line for, I think it was Jay Rodriguez to to uh, run onto. It just summed up his performance in one little bit of play. Uh, as well as that, Jack Cork, absolutely outstanding. Same with Westwood. I thought Ben Mee was really impressive. Probably doesn't get all the highlights because there wasn't so many big tackles as talks, but he did a lot of the uh, tracking of the runs of Jimenez that I noticed, especially in the first half, with them attacking our end. Well, all these positive signs, really good. Looking over the season, yeah, we're in six, but still it just feels sickening to... Well, it feels like a loss, to be honest, for them to equalise so late on. It's a real shame. I know people will say, oh, we should have gone for the second, and I sort of agree, to be fair. Like, we should have made it count and put it 2-0 while we could. But there's always a risk to going for that second away from home. So you're always running the risk of sitting back and being hit on the counter, and they can always score one goal, which is what happened. So, yeah, feeling pretty sick, but positive signs. Just got back from Molyneux. Uh, disappointing result, but another heartening performance. Uh Bit of a shame that first half we were dominant. We were well worth a 1-0 lead. We didn't look like we were going to relinquish that at any point either. You just felt that we had to come out in the second half and get another goal in the first 10-15 minutes just to really put the game to bed. We didn't do that. We missed a couple of good chances. 
I think we sat back a bit too deep, a bit too early. Uh, we let them come on to us when you'd think they'd be running on fumes the last 10 minutes with the European game in midweek. Uh, we had a few of ours who looked like they'd been playing in Europe in midweek. I think Barnes, Wood, McNeil all looked absolutely out on their feet towards the end. It was a shame we didn't have a sub for, for Wood as well because uh, the ball wasn't sticking the last 10-15 minutes and it's cost us a bit ultimately. Obviously, uh, I haven't seen the penalty back yet. I've got no idea what it was given for um, but the VAR checked it so it must have been the right decision. Bit of a signal to, to drop two points in that way, but it's still a decent point away. Uh, this stage in the season, you can't complain too much. I don't think it's not too much of a worry. Uh, and uh, yeah, as I say, the performance at this stage is probably the most important thing, and it, it was very encouraging. Uh, like we've got goals in us, defended really well. Ben Mee was a colossus. So onwards and upwards. And welcome to the No Name Ever podcast. I am your host, Natalie Bromley, and joining me on the panel this week to dissect that agonising point away from home at Wolves is Tom Whitaker. Tom, welcome back. Good evening. Nice to be back. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. Well, we have um, a couple of things to talk about this week. We're going to dissect that um well, it's a good point at the end away from home down at, at Molyneux, albeit quite gutting the way that we ended up conceding that very late equaliser. But we're going to have a look at, at basically all the good things that Burnley did that game. Um, and we're also going to look ahead at Sunderland, which is Wednesday night in the second round of the Caribou Cup. Um, talking point this week in the second half of the show, we're going to be looking at um, the fate of both Bolton and Bury this week with the tragic heartbreaking news coming from both of those clubs that it, it fears that, that both clubs are on the on the brink of collapse um Liam Hallinan is going to be joining us from the Clarets Trust just to give us an insight into what Burnley have in place to help with these situations and keep a fan voice on the the board and, and also just give us a little bit of insight as to, to what we can do to help um in the event that Burnley should ever find themselves God wouldn't it won't happen but in a similar situation but let's start by looking at that Wolves game. Um, 1-1, away from home, the third match of the season. The Clarets had gone into that fixture winning one and losing one with, um, albeit a very impressive display against Arsenal, um, but not one that we could pick three points up from. But certainly, I think, in terms of performances, the boys were riding very, very high. Um, we expected to get something out of the game. I think we hoped we were going to get at least a point, if not more. Um, and for the third game in a row, the Clarets put a really impressive performance away. Um, Tom, you were at the game on Sunday. As a general overview, what did you make of the performance? Yeah, I think overall you'd have to be really happy with it. Um... I think for a good 70, 80 minutes of the game, we were the better team. We were the only one that looked like scoring. It's a good time to play Wolves with them coming back off uh, you know, a trip to Torino in midweek. Uh, and obviously, we know what it's like uh, coming back from European games in midweek. It can affect your performances on the Sunday. Uh, but we took full advantage of that. You know, We were bright, we were pressing, we were on the front foot, created a lot of chances, uh, made it really difficult for Wolves to play their normal game, um, You know, up in the faces, pressing. And the only disappointing thing about the performance really was that uh, it dropped off a bit towards the end. We let Wolves sort of sneak back into the game and obviously that culminated in the equaliser late on. But uh, I don't think there was a bad performance from any players. Uh, defensively, we were rock solid. Going forward, 
we created a lot we looked like scoring so it's one of those performances where you think if we keep playing like that for the whole season then we're going to be absolutely fine yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've been massively encouraged by our performances in these first three games. It's quite interesting what you said there, Tom, when and just picking up on a couple of points you've made. I was quite surprised to see on Twitter, especially before the game, quite a negative reaction from Wolves fans, especially. Um, I'm just going to read through for you some of the tweets that I'd, and I'm not going to mention names because I, that's not fair. These are these are Wolves fans, not, not Burnley fans. Not, I think that would be fair either. But this is some of the tweets that I'd read pre-match. Um, one said that Wolves were streets ahead of Burnley as a club. Um, another said that we're not even on the same level as them. Um, a third one I saw... How can Burnley watch that performance for 38 games? I couldn't bear to watch 90 minutes of it. And another one, this is after the game, said that Burnley had gone to Wolves playing like it was Old Trafford. Um, There was certainly an air of arrogance, I felt, Tom, before the game from Wolves fans, who, bearing in mind that despite them having a pretty fantastic season last year, are still only in their second season as a Premier League club this time around. It felt very much like they'd got quite a lofty opinion of themselves and were actually, I was quite surprised to see such negativity towards Burnley. Yeah, I think uh, sometimes you, you've got to be a bit careful what you read on social media. Um, there's, there's probably a lot, well, there's probably a lot of Burnley fans who are, who put out some, shall we say, quite questionable tweets at times. Um, I mean, Wolves have got a really good team. <clears throat> Excuse me. Obviously, when we were in the Europe, uh, when we were in the Europa League last year, um, we saw it as a bit of a jolly. Um, but, you know, I think everyone that I spoke to would have been delighted if we got to the groups and quite managed that in the end. I think for Wolves, there's more of a sense that they've got the team, they've got the squad, they've got the self to go a bit further in that competition. So I think perhaps they don't quite have the same fear approaching these Premier League games after the European games as we did at the time um, perhaps that's quite unfounded looking at the level of performance um, but yeah I think um, I think this comments about the streets ahead as a club and things like that they're probably getting a little bit ahead of themselves there like you say it's probably some quite short memories uh, it was probably only was it five years ago we were relegating them to the, the third division um, and they've got back back up in the Prem now, you know, with a quite a large influx of, of Chinese money and with the help of uh, of an agent who's managed to get them a few players that most clubs in their position wouldn't have had a chance of signing. So uh, you'd think perhaps they'd, they'd remember where they've come from and, and look on the whole situation that they're in now with a little bit more kind of grace maybe. But at the same time, they you know, they have got a really good team. They've got a really good manager. They probably are uh, ahead of us in terms of they they can kick on and and probably maintain a seventh place or you know be be pushing for that seventh on a more regular basis than we can. Um, but you know we see it from a lot of a lot of fans of the teams we play. I think everyone uh, sees us as little Burnley. They expect that they're going to roll us over when we turn up. And what's so what's great about watching us is and why it's always fun to watch us, despite what those tweets are saying is. Uh, quite often it's not the case. Quite often we give these teams a bloody nose and long may that continue. Amen to that. Yeah, I think you are completely right, Tom. One thing I'm very guilty of is taking way too much to heart what I read on social media, not just 
crap that's aimed at me personally but certainly anybody who starts um bad mouth in Burnley I get really defensive and start I bite very easily I'm like how dare you have a go at Burnley that's my club um but it, just picking up on what you'd said uh, the, the reason why I raised this is that you're right it isn't just Wolves we seem to be getting it from a lot of clubs at the moment and that just feels very disheartening given the performances that we've put in these first three games of the season to me I feel like we've turned a massive corner and we might have been guilty in the first couple of years of being very defensive 10 men behind the ball not trying to win games I know media Durham at five sorry talk sport he's been uh, he hates us and in the past has talked about how disgusting it is that we don't even go out and try and win a game um but we're just not like that anymore and Deitch has always been very careful to just demonstrate progression on a gradual basis and I do feel like this season we've we've turned a corner we beat Saints 3-0 on the opening game of the season quite comprehensively in the end we were very unlucky to drop two points away at Arsenal and I think that was probably the closest game I've seen between us and and them in ever um and apart from um obviously a very very gutting very late penalty we were going to get three points away at Wolves so I just I just think I just hope sorry that we continue this impressive performance because the more we play well and the more we break that stereotype the narrative will change about us and a lot of the stuff that I hear us said about us about us being physical and long ball and direct and it's just so boring because we are so much more than that. And I think a lot of it is down to ignorance with doing your research about how we play. Um, but let's, I guess, move on to the game and not let me go on to a massive rant about being offended on behalf of Burnley Tom. Um, it, was a, it was a great first half performance, which we'll, we'll go on to look at in a minute in more detail. But it, it basically, apart from a very short spell of Wolves pressure in the first sort of five, six minutes of the game, Burnley were very much on top of that first half and it was just epitomised by an Ashley Barnes, Barnstormer of a goal again. Um, that goal was spectacular. But just can you put your finger on what's changed in him this season? That's three in three now. Well, I think it's four in three, isn't it? you got two against Southampton. And, uh... Oh God, of course it is, yes. Yeah, yeah. So even better. So uh, I think... You've always seen flashes of that kind of technique from Barnes. So uh, I'm thinking of uh, Tottenham away, I think 2014-15, he cut inside and bent a curler into the top uh, top corner from 20 yards. Man City away, he's got a cracker there as well in that, in that first Premier League season under Sean Dyche. Um, he's certainly a lot more consistent with it now. It's interesting to hear Peter Crouch on Match of the Day too, talking about um, Barnes in training. He said he's finishing it. He's doing that all you know all day, every day in training. Um, so you can tell he's worked on that side of his game and his and the consistency is there when perhaps before it was a bit of a one-off technique. Obviously, with that comes confidence and the more confident you are, the more goals you're going to score as well. I think he probably really feels like he belongs at this level now, whereas in the past he's perhaps been labelled as a, you know, a championship striker in the Premier League and at some point we're going to have to upgrade him. So he's stepped up to the mark in that regard. I think you have to remember as well the second half of last season he he was in this kind of form then as well obviously not four in three kind of levels but he was scoring on a consistent basis he was scoring some really good goals as well um so yeah I think it's probably just uh he's worked hard he's matured and his confidence has increased and uh and probably uh his progression and his development 
has mirrored that of the team as a whole, as you were saying previously. Probably in uh, in seasons gone by, you could label us as a bit more of a, a long ball direct team. And probably in seasons gone by, his game was more about um, either in centre-halves, throwing elbows, falling to the floor. And uh, of course, he's still got that in his locker, don't get me wrong. But I think there's a bit less of that now. I think there's a bit more focus on being positive, on being uh, direct and, and attacking. And uh, and it culminated in in that shot. I mean, the technique was absolutely fabulous to it. That right in the bottom corner didn't even hit the floor after it come off his foot before it was in the net. Uh, you know, the Wolves fans are saying, "How can you watch that every week?" Well, if I'm if we're seeing twenty yarders fly into the bottom corner every week, then uh, I won't be complaining. Fantastic goal, and uh, I, I think uh, to to go, go on to one of your other points there about the media sort of sitting up and taking a bit more notice of of the football we're playing. It seems to be Ashley Barnes everywhere at the minute. Everybody seems to be talking about how he's the most underrated striker in the Premier League. So uh, having that kind of positive media attention can only be a good thing as well. Oh, it really is. And, and I think one of the most important things for me is that we're suddenly talking about a striker. We, we've we've always talked about the defensive resilience. It's always been Tom Heaton or the fact that we had three England goalkeepers or it's been um, key. Uh, What's he got? I was going to call him Keaton, Michael Keaton. That's Batman. That's not who I mean. Batman did not play at centre half for Burnley. Who am I talking Keen. Oh my God. Michael Keane is the new Batman. Um, you know, we always talked about Keno, we talk about Tarkovsky, Ben Mee, but we've never really talked about strikers or uh, wingers because we never really had that flair. And we always used to get criticised by, by our narrow wins, like 1 0 or just one goal differentiates in, in a game. So. It is nice to be talking about a striker. Did you see, Tom, this week, the reports that that some of the mainstream media, particularly, I think, goals on Sunday and I think Match of the Day 2 picked this up as well. There are genuine suggestions that Ashley Barnes has deserved at least a call-up to Gareth Southgate's England squad. Well, do you know, it sounds daft, but when you look at what England have got at centre-forward at the minute, it's, it's not really that outlandish a shout, I don't think. I mean, at the minute, you've got Kane, obviously untouchable, and, and rightly so. But behind him, Rashford, uh, I think Barnes has outscored him in each of the last two, maybe three seasons. Uh, obviously, Rashford's your long-term pick there, but uh, certainly form-wise, he's, he's not touching Barnes at the minute. And the other one, I think, who gets the regular call-ups is Callum Wilson. I'm a big fan of Callum Wilson, personally, but uh, again, uh, has he been at the sort of consistent levels that Barnes has been in the last nine, twelve months? Nothing like it, I don't think. I don't think his goal record would stack up either. And beyond that, I'd, uh, there's nobody else jumping to mind uh, now. Vardy's retired, so uh, when, if you say it uh, on the face of it, it, does sound outlandish. But if if he was the second or third call-up centre forward for England, the form that he's on. I don't think you could argue with it, really. And, uh, you know, you've seen players like uh, Ricky Lambert, that sort of uh, mould of player, take that chance and uh, and run with it before. So if Barnes got it, uh, you know, who's to say he couldn't stay there? Yeah, I would be absolutely delighted for him if he, if he did get a call-up. And I think one of the problems he's facing is that there's still a little bit of elitist snobbery in the England setup. I think Southgate's done a lot to break down those barriers and we are well actually he's been forced to, hasn't he? Because we simply don't have a wide pool of players that are from the from the Premier League the who um Southgate can call on to put together a squad. So he has had to look at slightly less 
um, conventional routes. He's had to look into the championship and he's had to look at players who wouldn't normally get a sniff. Um, but he does still seem to have these hang-ups about having files on players at, at George's Park and making sure that they, they've known them. Um, he didn't want to really call Nick Pope, I don't think, because he didn't have him at youth team level. And I think that will be a problem for um, Ashley Barnes. I think it's been a problem for Ben Mee as well. Um, but let's see. Let's see what happens. Um, the last thing, I guess, to, to speak about on, on Barnes, Tom, is uh, did you see also uh, the rumour mill going around that, that United might be preparing for a bid for him in January? I mean, that's probably not going to happen. But as a genuine fear, do you, gen- do you think that clubs could come in for him in January or do you think he is too stereotypical Burnley now? I think he'd probably have the same problem as Sean Dyche in that like you say, rightly or wrongly, the perception of him is that he's not a, a top six player. Um, just like you've got the perception that Dyche couldn't do with a, a Man United or a, a Chelsea what he can do with, with a Burnley. Uh, I remember there was the links for Ashley Barnes being linked to Chelsea a couple of years ago and they had that mad January when they were getting linked to every striker who was over six foot tall. But uh, I think that's probably as, as close as he'll go, especially with his age as well. I think he's 29, so... He's, he's not one for the future. But uh, again, you know, uh, you can be you can be snobby about it. But if you if you look at it from Man United's perspective, who they got up front, uh, Rashford, again, which we've mentioned Barnes has outscored him consistently. Uh, they've just let Lukaku go. Um, so I think it's Rashford, Greenwood and Martial are the front options. Now, they're all quite similar players. Uh, you know, I'm sure Ole Solskjaer with his Man United DNA and all the rest of it isn't isn't the type of manager who would want to bring on a big bloke and get balls in the box if you're 1-0 down with 10 minutes to go. But, you know, there'd be worse options if you wanted to do that than, than Barnes. But uh, I think the money we'd ask for him, I can't see any any top six clubs parting with that. Uh, and, you know, same with, with Dash. He's not going anywhere by the looks of it because of this kind of perceived snobbery. And uh, it works in our favour, so long may it continue. Yeah, definitely. I'm not too concerned about that. Um, going back to the game then itself, Tom, I think the, the first half was an absolutely incredible performance by the Clarets. We could have and probably should have been at least two or three up by the time it got to half time. Certainly Ben Mee had that header that I think bounced off the inside of the post, if I remember rightly. And Wood had two really good chances as well to score. We have talked about in the past this need for our strikers particularly to be more ruthless in front of goal and to really put their their strikes away but I'm massively encouraged by just how many opportunities we're creating in the game it's just not like us yeah I think a a lot of credit for that goes to Chris Wood Uh, I think he looks so much better at leading the line than he has done in previous seasons I thought against Wolves his performance so uh you know, when, when you talk about the long ball, the stereotype is that it's hoofing up to a big bloke's head and he'll flick it onto a midfielder or something like that. But actually, a lot of the long uh, passes that we played on uh, on Sunday were for Woods chasing to the channels. And he's getting there ahead of the defender. He's staying on side, which, of course, is his, his major issue. Um, and he's using the ball well. So you saw at the Arsenal game last week, it was a long ball. He took it in the left-hand channel. He pulled it back. And we scored uh, the goal on Sunday, a big ball. He doesn't win the header, all right, but he, he puts the defender off. The defender heads it straight to McNeil and we get the goal. It's the same combo, uh, Wood, McNeil and Barnes. 
And uh, I think a lot of the chances that Wood had in the first half were all his own making as well. There was one, again, a ball down the channel, down the right-hand side. He gets there. Uh, the angle is quite tight. He has the shot, just drags it wide. The one where he, the, again, another ball into the box. Again, he puts the defender off. He gets it. He cuts inside the, the other centre half fantastically well. And I think he perhaps just goes for power rather than precision with the finish. I think uh, if he maybe just opens himself up a bit more and just guides it into the far corner. I don't think Patricio can get there, but he still has to come out and make a really good save to, to stop the shot going in. And yeah, as I say, that's all Wood's making. So I think his, his performances of in terms of off the ball and, and leading the line and not just getting on the end of things, he looks a much better player to me in that regard this season. Um, obviously it's early days, but I've been really impressed with him. Uh, so I think that's a that's a large part of it. I think probably getting McNeil further forward, as I say, for their last two goals, McNeil's been instrumental in getting that second ball, getting the uh, the pull back from the striker. And that's perhaps something that we've lacked in, in previous seasons as well. And I think it's something we lack with Cork and Westwood as a midfield too. People running on from midfield. Um, so that's made a difference as well. But there seems to be a bit more coherence about the, the attacking front three. It is, it is front to back quick, but it's not, aimless hoofing it's not long ball in the Wimbledon sort of sense it's it's quick transition it, uh, probably if it was a top six team doing it it would be called something like quick transition or uh or, or something like that as opposed to just hoofing it but uh it's there's obviously a bit more thought gone into it there's obviously a bit more method to it and you can see from the goals we're scoring that that it's paying dividends. Yeah, such an important point about the perception in clubs. Certainly when I've been watching Arsenal this this season, uh, David Luiz is just hoofing it up all the single time and that's just lauded as being this wonderfully direct football and it's just that when we do it, as was the case on on Sunday at Molyneux, Wolves fans were just shouting hoof at us all the time and it's like, well... Just because just because we've not got the David Luizes of the world making those balls, why does it make any less valid a, a type of play or a, a less lauded um, style of play than, than one of the, the big six play? It very much frustrates me. Um, second half, Tom, we knew Wolves were going to come out. I think we all talked at half-time about the need to... Wished we needed to increase that scoreline. Um, we needed to have converted some of those chances because Wolves were not going to play that um, poorly in the second half, and they didn't. Um, we've talked about this before. There's still a tendency in this side to revert to very deep last gasp defending almost when they are trying to protect either an unexpected um, result or or one that's a very important one. <laughs> Obviously, it nearly worked. It was a ninety seventh minute before the the penalty was conceded. But what what do you think? Do you think it's just nerves, or do you think there's something more in this as to why Burnley do go so defensive and just invite that pressure on them to try and protect a result? I think it's probably a natural mentality to go into when you're, you're protecting a lead, especially away from home, a 1-0 like that. You've seen us do it a lot uh, in recent years. You can think of plenty of games where we've let in last-minute equalisers not, or, or, or uh, last-minute goals, not just um, against the big teams either. And the one that springs to mind is Southampton a few years ago, uh, one one or in a last-minute equaliser from Gabby Adini. Um, and it, I think it, it's, it's quite a difficult mentality to overcome, I think. I think that's why 
uh, as you said, probably everybody our time was saying, look, we need to get another goal there. Um, because we've seen some of the best away wins in the last couple of years. Brighton away springs to mind. Crystal Palace, the uh, the first year we stayed up with 2-0 win. We've gone on and got that second goal and then we've looked quite comfortable after that. But when you're 1-0, especially when you're away from home against a good team like Wolves, you can never be sure. Um, and I think there's a natural inclination to, to sort of retreat to your 18-yard line. Uh, and, and just to get rid of the ball when it comes near. I think probably something that cost us as well on Sunday was the the front players really looked to be flagging um, the last sort of 15, 20 minutes. You don't very often see Barnes come off, um, but he, he took him off and, and you could understand why he looked knackered. Uh, Good Munson went off injured and that was a big blow because I think we'd much rather have took McNeil off a bit earlier. McNeil looked, looked absolutely shattered as well. And to be fair, he looked shattered from about half time. Um, I think the rest on Wednesday night will do him good. And uh, the injury to Good Munson meant that Wood had to stay on. And uh, I think the last 10, 15 minutes, the, when the ball was, was coming out to him, where in the first hour or so he was holding it up really well, laying it off, it was just bouncing off him because he looked absolutely shattered, bless him. Um, so I think that had a, a big bearing as well. I think we did put a really big shift in the first 70 minutes. And uh, and when you've got those tired legs, you know, you, you're, you're not inclined to to carry it and run with it uh, you're inclined just to get rid of it and put it in the stand and, and have a breather and I think I was a little bit disappointed with uh, Rodriguez when he came on in that regard I don't think he probably chose the most clever options when he got it there was a bit near the end of the game where Tarkovsky won it fantastically well on the edge of our box played a great ball down the line to Rodriguez you just got to take that in the corner you just got to hold it up and keep keep the ball keep it in there off for a minute or two and he comes inside takes on the defender and loses it straight away so there's a little bit of a, a lack of savvy there as well, maybe. Uh, I think, you know, there, there was a lot of complaints about us uh, from the Wolves fans and, and uh, journalists and things, time-wasting and taking our time with the goal kicks. You know, a legitimate way to run the clock down is to take the ball in the corner or just to hang on to it up in, in the opposition's half. And we never really seemed to get any of that going in the last 15, 20 minutes. So that was a disappointment as well. Um yeah, I think you can put it down to half down to fatigue and half down to, to mentality that's really difficult for, for any manager to overcome. Yeah, it's an interesting point there about Rodriguez, actually, because I think he's in a very difficult position. He's desperate to, to cement himself as a first-choice striker, but he's facing such an uphill challenge at the moment to try and displace either Wood or Barnes, who are both playing fantastically well. So when he gets opportunities like that and he comes on, his his tendency will want to take the defender on and try and get the goal because he wants to prove to Dyche that he can keep his place and that he should be starting. But obviously the game didn't call for that. It called for him to take him in the corner and run the clock down. Um, I was going to mention the time-wasting, actually, because that is something that we have been massively um, whinged about for quite some time now. And that did mean that the clock did go past the 95 minutes and I do wonder sometimes whether not just playing defensively and deep but those kind of tactics do come back to bite us because of course the referee is going to add on extra time because we've messed around in the five minutes of, of added time and, and we end up conceding after that 50 sorry that 95 minutes is up um, but nonetheless Tom we did um so I guess the last talking point is is that penalty. Um, I I honestly don't know what's a penalty and what's not a penalty anymore. Um, 
I got into I got into bother actually. Jamie Smith, who obviously regular listeners will know, used to be our host of the podcast. Slapped my wrist and told me to stop whinging about VAR on Twitter because I was sulking and decided that Burnley were going to be the top of the league of teams that were going to be shafted by VAR. And Jamie Smith quite rightly told me off and told me to stop blaming VAR for something that wasn't VAR's fault. But in my defence, I was sulking because we'd just conceded and I was not in the right frame of mind. But the Paulson gave the um, penalty straight away. Um, VAR did look at it because they look at all penalties and there was no clear and obvious error there and there was nothing at all to um, enable VAR to overrule the referee's decision. Interestingly, that subjective element has not... um, resulted in one single referee's decision being overturned yet in the first three weeks of the Premier League. Um, the, the FA have confirmed that it is a very high benchmark. So there has to be a fundamental error for VAR to overrule um, a, a referee's initial decision. And if it's just a matter of subjectivity, they simply won't, which does frustrate me a little bit because we all called for VAR because of inconsistency. Well, not just mistakes, but inconsistencies in the league and VAR isn't doing anything to stop inconsistencies in the league, but that's that's one for another day. Um, Tom, I've seen us have that very same tackle against our players and not been given a penalty. I've seen us concede that penalty against us more times than I care to remember. But even in these first three weeks of the Premier League season, I've seen less I've seen more contact than what Peters did on at the weekend and there'd be no penalty and the because it's a top six side the pundits in the studio saying oh no no no, you can't give a penalty for that and it's very hard not to feel conspiracy theorist but of course we conceded that penalty and the referee had no doubt and pointed to the spot talk some sense into me Tom because I'm very emotional when it comes to these things what was your view on the penalty uh, yeah, I thought it was a penalty, to be honest. There In the ground, it was a bit of a scramble. It was down the other end. I couldn't really see what, what had happened or what it had been given for. There was some sort of, it might, it might have been an handball or something like that. But I've seen it back since. And uh, it's just a stupid challenge. I mean, that ball's coming in. Jimenez isn't going to do anything there. He, he, but Peters goes to the ground when there's no need to. And Jimenez is clever, to be fair. He just gets in front of him. He knows he, Peters is going to slide in. He knows if he gets between Peters and the ball that he's going to catch it. It reminded me a bit of, uh, I think, last time we played Rovers at Turf Moor. Um, we've beaten one there with a penalty and uh, Shane Duffy about to put his foot through for a clearance. Boyd just got in front of him and they ended up booting Boyd in the back of the leg. It is a penalty. I mean, it's he's not gone to, to foul him. He's gone to play the ball, but he's gone to ground when he doesn't need to. He's made a daft challenge and the Wolves player has taken advantage of it. and. And uh, I don't think you can complain. I think the only frustrating thing about it is looking at the way VAR was used at the weekend. I think, like you said, there's a real reluctance to to use it. And I think if we'd had a referee... So, for example, in the Tottenham game, the one where Lascelles has fell over and took Kane out. And I I think Mike Dean has has avoided giving that because he's worried that the VAR is going to show him up if it's it's given a penalty. Um, And if we'd had a referee who was a bit cautious and thought, do you know what? I'm not going to give that and I'll wait for the VAR to tell me if it was a penalty. I think the way they're using it, the VAR wouldn't have overruled him. And it's a bit annoying that we got the one ref at the weekend who seemed to actually want to give a penalty for an obvious foul in the box. Uh, so that was a bit frustrating when I saw some of the other highlights. But uh, if if that had happened to us in the last minute, 
I'd have been I'd have been screaming for a penalty. I think it was nailed on. I think uh, the blames with Peters there. It's just the daft challenge. Yeah, I agree. I have to say, and I didn't, I didn't question this at all. If if that had happened to us in the other half, I would have been screaming for it as well. I think my frustration about us and penalties is just that there is still no consistency with with um, penalty decisions across the league, and I see them given for the same practically the identical foul they're given and they're not given week after week and it just always seems to feel like we're on the wrong end of it either we don't get it when it is or we get it we get punished the harshest for for making those silly challenges mistake from peters so quite a few tweets on my timeline on sunday from people questioning not demanding we're very clear here but questioning whether it's time for Taylor to get his place back at left-back, which to me feels incredibly harsh after three games. Because I think apart from that mistake, I don't think... Well, actually, I suppose he did make a mistake, didn't he, for the one of the Arsenal, um, the first Arsenal goal uh, last week. But on the whole, he's played all right. I don't really think it warrants him being losing his place yet, Tom. Do you think? Um, yeah, the Arsenal one. I think probably if Lacazette hadn't put that in, he might have given away another penalty there. Um, he's played well. Uh, you know, the Samson game he had a good game. He had two assists. Obviously, one of them was a bit streaky, but the ball that he put in for Barnes' second goal against Southampton was absolutely phenomenal. Um, but I think uh, you know it's the dice tendency. If someone has a good game, they get five or six after that before they get dropped. But me personally, I think from what I've seen, obviously I've, I've not seen a great deal of Peters, but personally, I think Taylor's the better player. Uh, he's certainly better on the ball, certainly better going forward. And I think he links up better with McNeil as well. I think perhaps part of the reason that McNeil looked so knackered on uh, on Sunday was that he's doing it all himself on that left-hand side. I think when Peters is playing it, he doesn't get a lot of support. Uh, I don't think I don't think he's this, the kind of player who will overlap and, and whip balls in from the byline like Taylor is. Uh, you know, Taylor's probably six, seven years younger than Peters as well. So he's got to be the long-term option there. So me personally, uh, you know, uh, it's it's not that, Peters has had three shockers. Uh, it's not that I think he's given away a penalty, therefore we should immediately drop him. But for me, who's the better player, Taylor or Peters? For me, it's Taylor. You should be playing your best team when you can. So hopefully he'll get a run out against Sunderland tomorrow night. He'll put a good performance in. And then uh, Dyche will use that as the, uh, the excuse, if you like, to, to get him back in the team. Because I think long term, Taylor's got to be the option there for me. Excellent stuff. So, final thoughts on the Wolves game. Who was your man of the match? I heard you talking up uh, Tarkovsky at the start of the show, and he did have a really good game. But I thought, actually, Ben Mee was our best player, um, especially in the first half. He put some absolutely phenomenal blocks in, phenomenal headers. It was a proper Ben Mee game, a proper Ben Mee performance. Just no nonsense, no messing about, winning everything. He was solid as a rock, and he really stood out head and shoulders for me. Excellent. Well, I'm going to stick to my... Tarkovsky guns, I think that's probably one of the best games I've seen Tarkovsky have. So I'm going to stick with um, with Tarkay. As ever, guys, let us know who your man of the match was. You can tweet us at No Nay Never or you can post on our Facebook page, which is No Nay Never. Um, or drop us an email at podcast at net. <laughs> (laughs) 
This week's talking point comes at the back of the quite distressing news coming out of the media this week that both Berry and Bolton are on the brink of, of becoming extinct. Both of them are in um, horrendous financial turmoil at the moment and both of them are expected to be served with notice from the AFL that they will have their membership of the Football League revoked. Um, which has been really quite distressing for everybody, any football fan, to to look at. And I know Bolton and Burnley certainly don't have any love lost between them, but I think from any fan to see an opposition team in that particular, well, I guess problem more than anything, um, and see their club potentially be on the brink of collapse is, is incredibly distressing. At the time of recording this podcast this week, um, the Tuesday 5pm deadline has passed for both clubs. Um, both of them had until five o'clock today to present evidence to the AFL that they had a credible buyer um, and somebody who could sort out the financial distress that both clubs were in. Um, I think the last update we had is that Berry had their deal had fallen through, but they had three new offers on the table. How credible they are, we don't know. Um, so I think Berry fans are looking to see if any of those will, will come of anything and, and convince the AFL to give them one further extension. They, of course, have already had their 14-day notice of, of um, their expulsion from the, the Football League. Um, Bolton also, their deal um, fell through, I think, a couple of days ago now. And as at the 5pm deadline, there was no news as to whether or not another deal had been been um, brought to the AFL's attention, I guess. Um, they're looking at, I guess if nothing happens tomorrow, they're looking at being served with the 14-day notice and potentially going into liquidation as well. So it's really dire straits for both Berry and Bolton. It's really quite shocking in this day and age that two such established historic clubs could be out of business and, and out of the Football League in as little as um, two weeks' time. Um the reason why we raise this this week, I think, is number one, it obviously it is in the news. But secondly, I think all football fans appreciate that that could be us. And, and we ourselves at Burnley have been in situations in the past where our finances have looked precarious and we've we've been on the the edge of extinction ourselves so this week i'm absolutely delighted to uh, to introduce you to liam hallinan who will serve as hallinan i hope that's the right pronunciation i'm sure liam will do that in a minute um but it, liam's going to do two roles for us this season firstly he's going to be a regular panelist on our main show um analyzing the claret's performance week in week out but liam is also um on the board of the Clarets Clarets Trust um, and he's going to talk to us this week about the role of the Clarets Trust, what its job is and essentially how that's going to help the community and the future of Burnley Football Club. Liam, welcome back to the show. Hi Natalie, thanks for inviting me on behalf of the Clarets Trust, so very much appreciate it. No problem at all. Um, I guess we should just really start at the very beginning. Do you want to tell our listeners what the Clarets Trust is and what it serves to, to achieve? Yeah, well, originally the Clarets Trust and all other trust organisations uh, of the same ilk were set up when, um, back in the days of uh, ITV Digital, when a, a lot of clubs invested a lot of money in in um, players and, and funds, etc. Uh, and, and there was quite a significant risk of them going um, into liquidation and bankruptcy when ITV Digital went, went pop, if you like. And trust was set up, um, if you like, as democratic non-for-profit organisations, but to represent supporters committed to strengthening the voice for supporters in decision-making processes of the club, and also to try to somewhat underpin 
the values and the the principles of the club. If a club were to go into into you know uh, a detrimental situation like we see Bury and Bolton going into today. So how long's it how how long's it been set up now, the Clarets Trust? So it's 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 been set up well before I got involved. I've been involved since uh, since 2018, but it started in in 2003, and the names and the characters of the board members have uh, have long since changed. But uh, we're well represented by our our chairman Peter Pike, who you'll probably recognise as a, a former Labour MP, and we've got some very very good strong. Um, and uh, strong Burnley fan candidates on the board from the local area and from a little bit further afield um, that, are, that are helping us push the push this trust forward. So I, I think certainly in Burnley's case, Liam, we we have been in a very fortunate position where certainly for the last ten years we have been financially sound. And some would maybe question whether or not there is a need for a supporter-led trust or that voice of reason. But but surely the trust is is so much more than that now. Yeah, absolutely. And you're quite right to point out that is there a need for the original principle of it? Well, we, outside of outside of the main club officials that, that sit and reside on the board, we are the, the main shareholder. The idea is to have that shareholder representation. And and one of the activities that we, we take part in and we are taking part in over the rest of the year is fundraising activities so we can increase that shareholder, but also um, increase our awareness across other supporters groups and it, to me it's about bringing inclusivity across all those other supporters groups such as the uh, LGBT group turfed out uh, and the youth supporters group and all the other geographically based uh, Burnley supporters groups so that we can voice a, um, a solid and central uh, opinion back to the club and give them our give them our views about how they're running it from not only a match day experience, not only a commercial, but from a community based experience as well. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, Liam, and I'm not sure that I even appreciated just how much the Clarets Trust does for the community and for the club. You always look at that and think that it is just that um, safety net, you know, in, in case there is financial difficulty. And we all know how quickly situation can change in football. There's no guarantee that Burnley will be in this position that we're in in the next 10 years. And we've always got to have that check and balance behind us. But it, like you say, it has now progressed to be such a, a clear line of communication. And you know yourself, Liam, we've talked about this off air quite a lot of times in that with modern football, there is, there's an increasing distance between the paying fan, the, the guy who's, who had the season ticket for their whole life, who rolls up at, at three o'clock on a Saturday and watches his game. He's becoming further and further down the pecking order and more and more distance between him and the decision makers globally as to where our game's going. And that's really important with a team like Burnley because it's such a part of the community. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, do you get the same feedback from other trusts that they are have those concerns that they want to keep that um, that ethos of a football club within the fans? Without a shadow of a doubt. And not only that, but it's about understanding what the common themes are that affect all the fans across all the supporters groups and all supporters trusts. So, for example, we work actively as a, as a, as a, as a trust organisation where... We're actively represented with the football supporters organisation, which is now the newly merged 
National Supporters Authority, if you like, uh, formerly known as the uh, Football Supporters Federation, Supporters Direct. We sit with the Premier League and we discuss all the topics that affect all the fans, such as away travel, safe standing, ticket allocations, fixture rescheduling. The biggest pain in the backside for everybody is uh, I've booked yeah. tickets for Tottenham away and they've decided that you know, there's a European fixture, we've got to change it to the Sunday and it was on the Saturday and I've, I got cheap tickets. <clears throat> so we're actually working with the FSA, we're working with the uh, the transport secretary to look at things like with the, the, the nickname in it, the fanfare, which is, if you like, a packaged um, uh, ticket price for the train travel that, that looks at um, making those fixture sh- reschedules um, safer and softer on the, on the fans in terms of uh, on the, the uh, hit on the pocket. But not only that, we're also learning from other trusts and looking at that inclusivity. So I was speaking to a gentleman that worked with uh, Bradford City, um, Bradford City Trust, and he, he made an observation. He would he would walk up to Bradford City uh, uh, two hours before the game, and there'd be some some Asian children around the outskirts of the ground playing football, and then about an hour before the match kicked off, they'd all disappear. And then as soon as, the match really? kicked, as soon as the match kicked off, they'd come back out again and they'd be kicking. And he, he put two and two together. You know, there was a disconnect between Bradford City being a major popular, major uh, Asian populated city and it not having a connection with its Asian community in terms of the football club. Yeah. And he worked with the officials at the football club. He worked with the community. Now, would you believe it? There is a supporters club called the, uh, <coughs> the uh, Bangla Bantams. And they were oh, fantastic. across the country doing cooking sessions and all sorts of stuff. And things like that warm my heart. And it's stuff like that I want to bring into the, the Clarets Trust and work with, with Terry and, and Chris and, and all the guys, Peter on the board, to expose that group. We've got a, a pocket of, of, uh, of our community that we've not quite cracked yet. If you walk around the fan zone on any match day, you will see all the different groups being represented. We work with Burnley FC in the community on a, a project that's being funded by the Premier League Fans Fund, and it's all about expanding the exposure of supporters and supporters groups to the club and creating that inclusivity. And I want to work harder and harder on, on bringing that in. So for anybody that's listening, if you want to know more about it, not only the Clarets Trust, but all the other groups like the Youth Board and LGBT, which is called Turfed Out, or all the other groups, come and join us. And also, of course, the great work that Burnley FC and the community do. Come to the Van Zone. Absolutely. And I mean, I can't imagine anybody listening to this isn't 100% inspired by that, Liam. Um, now, obviously, Team None and Ever, we are members of the Clarets Trust. Uh, myself and Tom, especially, we were talking about this when we were recording the, the podcast this evening. We're both members. Um, membership is, is, is really inexpensive. It's £10 per year per adult and £5 a year for those aged under 16 and over 60. Um, and that just, it just gives you a, a voice and it gives you an opportunity to work with the Clarets Trust and with BSC in the community to just ensure that this club stays within us. Um, Liam, you must be absolutely distraught to hear, just to read what's going on at Bury and Bolton. Oh, absolutely gutted. How, how this has got to this point is 
is unbelievable to me. I mean, like I say, I've only been involved with the Trust since 2018. I've only really seen under the covers since that time. But being an avid Burnley fan, travelling um, home and away um, for pretty much most of my life, seeing all this happening and then reading the background. When I first started in Burnley, and it all could have happened to Burnley at that point in time. Um, yeah. Like, Forget that. If, and, and if it wasn't for the absolute astute financial management of the board that we've got now, and we've got to take our hat off to them, we might whinge when we don't seem to spend the money in the transfer window. But for God's sake, um, I can only express uh, my sympathy with, with Burry and Bolton. And our chairman, Peter Pike, has uh, written to Forever Burry and expressed um, sympathy and support for Burry and Bolton um, on our social media streams. Um, Fantastic. Well, listen, Liam, thank you so much for your time. And, and I would urge everybody who's listening, if you are moved and you are inspired to take up some work with the with the Claret's Trust and just help to keep our community spirit that we've been built on for all of these years firmly in its place, then do visit the Claret's Trust website. It's www.claretstrust.co.uk. All the membership detail is on there. You can join and pay online if you want to, or you can pay by post. And we will continue throughout the season just to keep checking. I mean, Liam will be with us regularly anyway um, on our panel reviewing the game. We'll put you back in your, your comfort zone of talking about the, the game as well, Liam. Um, but he'll be, you'll be joining in throughout the season just to give us an yeah. update on what's happening with the Clarets Trust and with BFC and the community for sure. Cheers, Natalie. I appreciate it. I just want to say, say one more thing. Um, on the yeah. uh, spirit of the fundraising um, and on the website, um, on the website tonight we posted a, a race night that we're hosting at the KC110 Club on the 7th of November. It's all about fundraising. It's £5 to enter and you get your pie and peas, as, as is usual, on a Burnley fundraiser. Event. Excellent. The usual, <laughs> usual video um, race night. Please do join us. It's open to members and non-members and you can actually register and pay your entry fee on the website tonight. So please join us. Brilliant. Yes, they do do make sure. And let us know if you're going to be there. We can have a, a known and ever listener meet up and we can put some names to faces. It'd be great to see as many of you there as we possibly can. Um, brilliant. Liam, we'll probably speak to you on Tuesday when we've uh, been to the Liverpool game and we're previewing Liverpool. Um, sorry, Monday next week. And uh, we'll catch up with you as the season goes on. Thanks, Liam. Cheers, Natalie. So we're going to end this week's podcast, Tom, with a look ahead to uh, this week's second round Caribou Cup game. Um, we don't yet know the result or the teams because we are recording the main show on Tuesday night. I'm a little bit forward given it was the bank holiday weekend. Um, home tie, one that I was pretty excited about, actually, Tom. I was really looking for a decent fixture, I thought, for once in, in, once in, in the Cup games. What do you expect team-wise? Are we thinking a complete 11 change here or do you think some of the players who featured in the first team will also get a run out tomorrow? Uh, I think it'd be 10 changes and I think the only reason for that is that Goodmanson got injured or I think you'd have 11. Um, I think it'd be Hart in goal. Be, yeah, you, you've got Taylor, Gibson, uh, Long and Bardsley. Um, uh, probably going to have to play McNeil by the sounds of it, which is a bit of a shame. Because um, Atuna, he he got a rest. But if you've got Drinkwater and Hendrick in the middle, Lennon on the right, and then Rodriguez and Vidro up front, there's nowhere, no one else you can really put on the left. So 
uh, unless he does something really bold, get someone out of the youth team or something like that. I think it'd be 10 changes. I think it'd be McNeil plus the 10 that I, I mentioned there. Do we think we'll see Drinkwater, though? I'd heard some rumours it was going to be the 14th of September after the international break before he was going to play. Or I suppose, does we think that's just a league game, maybe? Yeah, probably. I I don't. I think uh, given our, our record in the Cups under Dyche, I, think, I don't think he's taken it too seriously. So... Uh, it wouldn't surprise me to, to see Drinkwater get a run out. Yeah, I do hope so, actually. It'd be nice to see him. Um, what are your expectations? Or I guess what are your hopes for this this League Cup? I, I'm always torn with the League Cup because it just starts so early. And because the the importance of the Premier League and because we've only usually got three games under our belts before we play it, it's just too early in a season to commit key players of your squad to try and get round a cup I think by the time you play in the FA Cup, the third round comes round, it's Christmas already and you've got a good idea of where you are. But then at the same time, Tom, I want to win everything and I'm getting to that point now where I feel comfortable that Burnley are going to survive in this league and I really want us to go on a couple of really good cup runs. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I think the way we started the season, we do look like we're going to be, if not you know, top seven, we're going to be safe and we're going to be comfortably safe. And you think that's the time when you'd want to start playing on the cup competitions, having a bit of a go. But I don't think that's part of Dyche's mindset. I think probably the, fact that the squad's still quite small plays into that somewhat. But uh, I can't remember the last time I missed the League Cup game. And uh, I've got a ticket for tomorrow night. But you start to wonder why when you think of some of the previous ones. Port Vale, uh, Accrington. I was at Burton last season. There's, there's certainly a big drop-off in the tempo, I think, in these games. So... As much as I'd like us to say, yeah, do you know what? we're going to take the cup seriously this year, and perhaps a cup run that doesn't involve drawing Manchester City away might give us a chance of, of of going on a bit of a run. I don't think that Dyche is going to be prioritising it. I think we're probably going to see a weakened team, uh, at a less than stellar tempo tomorrow night, and I think probably if Sunderland put a, a strong team out and they're really up for it, then they could well cause us a few problems. So. Uh, as much as I'd like us to have a go and as much as I'd love to say we're going to get a decent cut run this year, I'm not too optimistic about it, to be honest. Oh, dear, Tom. That took that took a turn I wasn't expecting. You're usually upbeat. Go on, then. G- give me your final score prediction. Uh, well, uh, my heart says we'll edge it 2-1. My head says it will probably go to penalties and from there it's anybody's game. Oh, well, I'm going to be massively optimistic and I'm going to say Burnley will win by at least 4-0. I'm very confident. Even with our second side, I think it'll be a really good game. And actually, the, the key for me this season is that we've suddenly got competition in all areas. And it's not just competition from players who probably aren't ever going to get a game. We've got genuine contenders of people who will want to make their case for a first first team starting place so they will want to impress when they come through and I don't expect a subpar performance I think I think we'll really turn them over so there you go um I'm going for 4-0 oh, I'd say I like that, I like that. You've, you've, uh, you've made me feel a lot better about going to that game tomorrow now <laughs> yeah me too we're gonna enjoy it it's gonna be great and of course we've got we've got lovely memories of, of the of What's he called? Jay Rodriguez playing in second round. Well, actually, it was a bit. Was it a bit further ahead? Was the Fulham game that season in two thousand and eight nine? It's eleven years, isn't it? Since yeah, maybe he can do the same. And that was third round. I thought you were going to say. I'm sure Burton at home one year we beat him like six three or something. Daff, and he got four in that. I think Rodriguez. I thought you were going to say that. No, well, I might do now. All four for Jay. 
Four nil, four for Jay. There you go. You heard it here first. <laughs> now that is definitely all we have time for this week. My thanks as ever go to Tom Whitaker for joining me on this week's panel and giving that splendid analysis of Wolves Away. And um, thanks go to Matt, our producer, for editing and producing this podcast and for making us sound nice and slick. And uh, his uphill battle every week when he gets our recording is always very much appreciated. Uh, music this week is as ever provided by uh, James Mike Steen Ant from the band Joyce so thanks to these guys um, but finally my thanks go to you the listener for downloading and listening to this podcast your support is very much appreciated and we would not be here without you we will be back on Friday with a special preview show looking ahead to Liverpool at home with Statman Dave I've been Natalie Bromley this has been the Known and Never podcast until next time Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered. By fans.